welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Barron. I am speaking to you today from the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe. I am on the Williams Treaty. Our closest Indigenous partners in education are the Chippewa Adrigina Island First Nation. Today, I am speaking with Rabia Kokar. Rabia is an elementary teacher in Toronto. She is passionate about equity and social justice education. Recently, Eco Inquiry hired Rabia as an equity consultant to review the website with an equity, inclusivity, and social justice lens. Rabia inspired our first Eco Inquiry podcast today, in which we ask you to open your comfortable, well-fitted environmental and outdoor education backpack and get ready to re-emerge with new tools to retrofit and restock it. Rabia is coming to you from Treaty 13, the traditional lands of the Mississauga of the Credit First Nation. Please join me in welcoming Rabia Kokar. Thank you for joining us for today's Eco Inquiry podcast. Our guest today is Rabia Kokar and she is a teacher with the Toronto District School Board. She is also an equity consultant. She has done equity work for Eco Inquiry. Thank you so much, Rabia. And she is passionate about equity and social justice issues. So Rabia, my first question is, tell us um, your equity citizenship story. What, What brought you to this work? And I'm also really interested in your voice and, and how, how your voice has, um, just how you see how your voice has developed. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <clears throat> I love all of the work that you're doing um, with this platform. So I'm super excited and honored to be here and to learn and share and grow with you. Um, I think, you know, in terms of my equity journey or my equity growth, I think my own experiences um, as a racialized visible woman um, experiencing the world have really shaped uh, my ideas around what type of a world we should all, or community we should sort of be striving towards creating and how we all have to play a role a role in that. And so I think, you know, um, my own experiences as a student going through the school system, as well as my lived experience um, on a daily basis really inform the Work that I'm doing and oftentimes those experiences are you know um, full of discrimination and you know Islamophobia unfortunately but I think having these experiences um, and and being an educator I think what inspires me or what created my equity journey was that recognizing that you know as an educator I do have positional and situational power and so I can intentionally strive to create change uh, within my own classroom or within my own sphere of influence. So I think, you know, what inspires me is yes, going and navigating my own experiences, the experiences of my family, but um, also knowing that, you know, education is a way that we can create more inclusive and better communities and just being passionate and being invested in in um, education as a vehicle to create this sustainable um, change where people of all identities um, can experience the world um, fairly. And I think, you know, through my journey as an educator, what really inspires me is 
my students of diverse identities and how they show up and how they show um, and really model how it is possible to create um, you know, spaces that are inclusive and fair. So I think those sort of things have really inspired me. Um, and I think your second question was uh, well, focused uh, on voice. It, yes, because, you know, you talk about the word responsibility and mm -hmm. that you see this work as a responsibility of an educator. I, I do as well, you know, equity, social justice. And then with this added sort of layer of um, really as an environmental educator, a responsibility of hope. There's so much yes. doom and gloom out there and our, our students and sometimes myself included, I can get mired down by, you know, so-called eco-anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, um, this responsibility of hope and really one of the antidotes I see to that eco-anxiety and to, to racism mm -hmm. is, is action. And part mm -hmm. of that action is, is through our voice, right? Even yeah. as having this conversation is, is an action and a creative piece to, to do that work. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm wondering really as, um, speaking or having, having, youth listen to a conversation like this or educators who inspire youth how what would you what advice would you give to you to find their voice to 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 say well okay this is scary and vulnerable work but but how how do you speak out about it what what prompted you to do that mm -hmm. i think you know i think what you've said is so beautiful and it's really resonated with me um this idea that equity work is hopeful work and I agree with you. I think, you know, um, the news or our lived experiences can often be so overwhelming to constantly carry. Um, but I agree with you. I think when we work towards um, equity and when we show our commitment to equity where, you know, we are being critical, but we're also being hopeful where we recognize that there is change possible. Um, and I think that's something that's like a really beautiful message to, to um, know that like for children and youth and people to know that if there is something unfair, they can always do something um, to make things a little bit more fair. And I, I think that's where, you know, what you're talking about, like the action piece really comes into play where, you know, you, you have to, you, if there's a message that we want to really communicate to children and, and our young people is that, you know, if you see something that's unfair, you, you can do something about it. And I think um, children and young people have always been part of social movements. They've always been centered um, and they've always had a role to play. And I think all of that goes back to this idea of hope. And as I reflect um, on my own experiences and, you know, maybe how I found my voice, I think I have to um, reflect on how I always had my voice with, within me. Um, and I think that there were just systems in place that, um, that maybe I didn't feel comfortable to use it or systems um, that said that my voice wasn't like important or, or necessary or, or, or important even. And so I think just um, growing up and I think, you know, particularly in high school where um, there is like one significant, um, I guess, situation where I think I really not necessarily found my voice because I believe it was always there, but I think I saw the power that my voice could make one day. And being a really shy um, student, um, 
that was something new for me because I never really thought that I could actually speak and have people listen. And, and, and I never thought that that would be a way that I could make change. I never necessarily thought that speaking out or using my words could be one of the ways that I could create change. And so I think, you know, I'll talk a little bit about that experience, but I think that experience in itself, um, sort of planted a seed within within me that said that this is something you can do and this is something anyone can do because whatever we need we already have it within us and i think it's important for us to sort of um think about like think critically about like why we might not be speaking or even think critically about the different ways that we can speak it's not just with your voice i think it's important to recognize that there's different ways that you can speak you can do art um you know, there's so many, there's such a diversity of ways that you can really create change. And I think, um, you know, just speaking back to a particular situation that now as I'm reflecting, I really think that that was one of the big situations that planted a seed in me. And it's not like the next day I went and I was like making speeches or, or anything like that. But I think um, now reflecting, I think it planted something in me. And I think, um, that was important, like having those experiences and through assignments um, that really shows that we are worth uh, everything and that we are capable and competent. And so um, the assignment that I'm referring to was a grade 12 uh, project where we had to choose any topic we wanted and we had to write a speech on it. And um, my teacher wanted us to then present the speeches in the front foyer in our school. And that was so like nerve wracking. But, um, you know, I, I went up to the podium, I wrote a speech about like um, some injustices that were happening that I was really passionate about. Um, and, you know, I wrote this speech and I'm, I'm so shy and my paper is, and when I finally get up to the, uh, the, the podium to speak, my paper is like shaking like crazy, <laughs> like it's shaking so much. Uh, my body is shaking, but then when, when I speak, my voice came out strong. And I think what was, you know, that was so new to me because I was so shy, never, never, never necessarily spoke in such a big platform. Um, and not only was I able to actually get out my words, which was something, you know, very cool for me to actually be able to like go up, speak and make sense. But what I realized and noticed was that other people were listening, like they stopped and they were listening. And I think that was like paramount for me to know that, you know, if you care about something, you can say something about it. And I think you know, there will be people who care and in that way you are creating or you are taking an action. So I think that's kind of my reflection on my voice and sort of always knowing it was there, but systems maybe, um, you know, showed that maybe my voice didn't matter or, or, you know, or, you know, that I couldn't necessarily speak and have somebody listen. So yeah, I think those would be kind of like those significant experiences. I think I think that significant time when you're in grade 11 and 12, when you're 15, 16, and you're mm -hmm. starting to realize that those childhood concerns are real concerns. Mm -hmm. And and if you're going to follow your true path and be true to yourself, you know, you do have to use your voice. And, you know, the youth environmental movement has snowballed and it's... Um, mm -hmm it's happening all over the world now, but I do remember, you know, you're bringing me back to that time that I actually haven't thought of in a while. And it was a really painful time in my life when I was in grade 11. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, I grew up in Northern Ontario, I, or I was born in Northern Ontario, but then grew up in, um, in York Region, in the GTA, where mm -hmm. everywhere I played got turned into subdivisions. And, you know, I was starting to become more aware. This was, this was the 80s, so I'm dating myself, okay? <laughs> the kind of me generation, um, the Madonna material world generation, right? And so I came to this realization that I needed to do something about social justice issues and environmental issues. And I started a group mm -hmm. called Global Awareness, and it had about four people mm -hmm. join it. And within days, within days, there were students who called themselves fascists and they put up these pink signs all over the lockers, all over the whole high school. And they called themselves anti-student global awareness fascist group. And so when I see this, this um, you know, these signs about Antifa, anti-fascist, it brings it right back it, or, or um, you know, the, these fascist groups, I'm like, how I don't I don't get that I don't I don't mm -hmm. actually understand it but what you're talking about is a structure mm -hmm. right where there are structures of power and even my first experience of people coming um or working against very very quickly you know an environmental response a response for peace because at the time in the 80s um it, there was you know the cold war going on mm -hmm. and um and uh, between Russia and the states, and there, were, mm -hmm. there was fear of, of um, sort of a greater fear of nuclear war at that time. That's really mm -hmm. what woke me up and I went to protest and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I remember my mom saying, because actually teachers and students were not supportive and even my own friends were like, okay, you're weird, we're all going to business mm -hmm. school. And I went off and did environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And um, my mom said, you'll find your people there. And I did, you know, I, I found, I found people and I, I think that that's very important that when we first, you know, are using our, our voice, that you're saying your paper was shaking and there's mm -hmm. this, because it's your true self, there's that vulnerability piece and I, people can hear in our voice confidence now, they don't see the paper shaking or our voice trembling because we've had practice mm -hmm. at this. And we've got partners and groups and collaborators mm -hmm. and co-conspirators, right? Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, I, I think that piece, and I've seen you gain more and more partnerships. So what advice would you give for finding ways to collaborate? That's that, I think that's a really important piece that people don't feel like they're so out there and mm -hmm. so alone. That's a really scary place to be. Yeah, um, just listening to you, I love how your mom said, you know, you'll find your people. I think that's so beautiful because I think oftentimes when we are doing this work, we can feel very alone and that we're the only ones doing it. And I think what I think what I would, you know, the advice I would give is that, um, and maybe it's not like amazing advice, but I think, you know, the advice that even if I'm thinking to my own um, younger self, I would just say to, you know, um, to speak, if there's something that you really care about, invest in it, learn about it, um, and speak. And, and speaking can be in various ways. It's not just verbally and orally speaking, but speak in a way that makes sense to you. And, and maybe that's, you know, by taking pictures or photographs, maybe that's by um, writing a, a novel or something. So I would say, you know, invest in something that you care about. Um, and, you know, find a way to speak and to like raise awareness in a, in a way that makes sense to you. And 
in all of that, remember that you are capable and competent and your voice is needed and it's, and it's worthy and it's needed to move things forward because we each um, have an individual voice that's very important. And it's, you know, it's special to us because it shows our own individual, but also collective collective experiences. And so, you know, I would just say to speak in, in any way that makes sense and feels right to you because it's something that's needed and it makes sense. And I think our individual voices working in different places, like different sector sectors and different positionalities, it adds something beautiful and enormous to our collective voice because it shows that there's so many people working from so many different places and spaces that are committed about something. Um, and so my advice would just be to like, you know, believe in yourself and just to really uh, explore and find what feels right to you. And, you know, let the world know in whatever way that makes sense to you. And it doesn't have to be um, in a big, you know, way, uh, whatever feels big for you is big, you know, it, it, it's and, not. Uh, hmm. And And one of the ways you've written in your blog that, you know, you can change the world. And one of the ways you have lifted others' voices is by your role as a teacher librarian in TDSB and the role you continue to do in your equity work with book suggestions. You're passionate. Mm -hmm. It's clear you are passionate about books changing mm -hmm. the world. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us more about your expertise in equity and social justice related to the books that you recommend. And, you know, we're, we're recording this in July, but I won't post it until the fall. And so that will be after your summer reading challenge. So you, you really encourage people, um, educators, students to read books and to change the world. And you believe that the world can change through books. So can you tell us more about your role and that summer challenge and, and the work that you do mm -hmm. in that area? Yeah, uh, I think that that's so like sweet that you've brought it up. Um, I've always been like very passionate about books and I really attribute it to, you know, my parents taking me to the Toronto Public Library when I was very young and so just sort of like really building that love of reading. Um, and I think as I got older, I never really saw like, um, I fell in love with books, but I never really saw people like me and my experiences reflected and represented in the books that I was reading or coming across. And so, you know, that made me really think about how books and stories are, you know, like cornerstones of our communities. They really show who matters, whose experiences matter. Um, and so, you know, I, as I was growing up and as I was reflecting and not really seeing myself reflected, um, you know, it really made me feel a sense of like, I didn't really belong here in this context, whether that was this country or this community, because if you don't really see yourself represented authentically, it really, you know, um, impacts your ideas around belonging and who's who belongs and which lifestyle, um, which experiences are centered and which experiences do we have to like strive towards while giving up parts of who we are. And I think um, in the life of like young people, I think books and stories play such a big role. You know, my role as an educator, um, stories are really the ways in which we deliver curriculum. 
um, they are oftentimes the springboards. And so I'm, as I was reflecting, I'm, I'm always thinking about like who is centered, whose story is kind of like the one that we always gravitate towards. And it might not be intentional. It's sort of something like, um, it's sort of something that's always been done. And so I think my work is really focused on um, expanding the stories that we know and the people that we know and the people that we see. Um, so, you know, through my work and through this platform uh, of being an educator and having positional power and really through social media to mobilize change, I really feel like um, storytelling and books is a tangible tool that we can use to really engage in equity work and social justice work because books really show us who matters and if we are trying to create a society and a community where we're saying that everybody matters with their intersectional identities um, we need to bring that forward in the books that we have and the books um, that you know we're exposing our young people to or even us as as adults and so you know i think my work is really focused on using books to affirm our own experiences as well as expand the experiences that we may not have, but really through the voices of the communities that we're learning about or, or that we want to be allies with. So um, really like affirming and expanding our own experiences. And I think that's really um, the ways in which the summer reading challenge came into being was was a project that I was working on for a little while, but just with school, it, it kind of um, was put on hold. but then with um, just the recent um, and ongoing attacks and like anti-Muslim hate and, you know, Islamophobia that was really happening, I kind of like was thinking about what I could do with my positionality. Like I wanted to create some sort of a change and to sort of work towards dismantling those stereotypes. Um, and so I went back and I sort of finished up the reading challenge and I just put it out on my social media and while I was like curating the books for the reading challenge I was very um, interested in centering and bringing forward um, books that showed Muslims in you know diverse and dynamic but also everyday ways you know oftentimes we um, are like there are like we're only represented as a monolith and we're only represented in particular experiences that often situate us away from a North American context. Um, and so, you know, the choices of the books were very intentional because I think they just showed like everyday experiences and they really expanded who we see as Muslim, how, what, what are some of the things that Muslims do and, um, and, and we recognize that, you know, we can see ourselves in each other's experiences. And I, I hope that that's something that builds humanity and restores dignity of all people. Um, and I think, I think it's really a way, I think books, you know, going back to your uh, main ideas, I think books are ways we can build bridges between each other. So I'm very passionate about um, using them as a tool for social justice education or, you know, equity education. Thank you so much for your expertise and everything that, that you said. And, you know, I think you're you're gaining sort of more and more followers and, you know, people are, are hiring you in your equity consultant role. And I certainly did for Eco Inquiry to go through the website. And I also cherish books. 
I'm, I'm an elementary school teacher and I cherish them for the exact reasons that you said, you know, that a, a book can change the world. It can change the way we, we see the world slightly mm -hmm. or very, very profoundly. But, you know, when you've worked with Eco Inquiry and every page has suggested books at the end, I tried really hard and I continue to work at trying to find books where the protagonists, the characters are set in outdoor settings or there are environmental issues. And it's not, there aren't a plethora of racialized people mm -hmm. in those books. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I've done that you sent me some articles mm -hmm. about that, which I've read and I thought, okay, this isn't just me trying to find them and you know they're there and I'm not finding them I'm, I'm making an effort so mm -hmm. to find them and um I'm wondering if you can tell us more about the representation or lack thereof of characters in children's pictures books related to you know the outdoor experience the Canadian experience the the North American experience and also the environmental movements you know so so what did you notice and what do you think needs to happen yeah, um, I loved going through, you know, your website because I thought it was so um, uh, very, I thought it was very comprehensive and very practical for educators. Um, you know, if educators were interested in a particular topic, they could go there and they could find the relevant information. And what educators really love is also those tangible tools like books because they can really help engage and, and you know, uh, springboard those conversations that you were having in terms of sustainability and, you know, environment. Um, and as I was going through, um, you know, do uh, as I was going through the different um, parts of your website and looking for resources, um, I noticed that there were so many books that showed um, such like diverse experiences in the outdoors. Um, but what I did find was um, I found like issues with representation. I, I found that there weren't many books, like you've said, that showed, you know, people of diverse racialized intersectional identities engaged in those experiences. If they're totally agreed. If they were, um, if they were represented in books, it was often just like a surface level representation, which was just like, um, they might be sideline characters, or they might show up in the background of the story, never the foreground or central character. Um, and I think this speaks back to the idea of who, um, stereotypically or traditionally, who the outdoors is, is seen as being for. Um, and who has always been represented, you know, in camping experiences and hikes and swimming experiences. Um, and so I think a lack of representation in this in this field showed um, the ways in which we we think about those experiences as a whole and who they're for. And so um, I agree with you. I think I think it is difficult to find books that are written from people of those communities of diverse intersectional racialized communities. Um, you know, experiencing those uh, things and also writing about them. And so there was a gap that I found. And I, I think just going back to my own personal experiences, um, I never really saw myself reflected in outdoor experiences. And so I always felt like I could never really 
I could never really have those or engage in those experiences. And so, you know, I think what you said about, you know, books can change the way that you see the world. And I, and I think about like, if I was a child and I saw experiences of like a Muslim family camping or something like that, what I then think that those were experiences that I could have too, because I was Canadian. And I think, you know, I think this conversation of representation in the outdoors really speaks to the idea of what, who is seen as a Canadian, who isn't seen as a Canadian, and really what, what does the Canadian identity represent? Because oftentimes when we think about the Canadian identity, we, we think about like camping and we think about all of these like traditionally wilderness or, you know, um, outdoor experiences. And so I, I think um, I don't think it's like an easy answer of like why there is like a, a lack of representation or a gap in this in this space and then in this field in children's literature. I think it has so much to do with so many of these bigger issues as well. But what I do see is I see some changes happening and I see um, I, I see people um, of diverse identities and experiences um, sort of writing about their experiences. And I think that's really, really important, you know, um, because we really want to create space where all types of people are represented completely and not just surface level representation, uh, really represented completely in all um, in all genres and all experiences, because it really has to do with belonging, right? Like if we can see ourselves in different experiences, then we, we know that these are things that we can strive towards and these are experiences that we can have as well. I, I think so too. And I think there, there are changes happening, but you know, there are also terrifying things happening. And in the Muslim world, we've seen terrible, terrible incidences of Islamophobia. And um, you know, so you've, you've written on your blog about this idea of making your own table of not feeling welcome or a sense of belonging at the table. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that, but also how does one take that and sort of use the analogy of the outdoors and equipping one's backpack? You know, your backpack, you can you can put your tent, you can, you can put a, you know, a folding chair. So, so what do, what does, the outdoor education community and teachers taking their walks where some students may say, this isn't actually a space where I feel emotional safety and there might not even be a physical sense of safety. So, so how can outdoor educators unpack their backpack a bit to, to make space for other backpacks and, and how can one make their own backpack? So if I could just play on that analogy for a bit and, and maybe, you know, that's a very long question. So maybe if you could tell us about this idea of making your own table and then move into making your own backpack. I love that so much. I think that's so, that's such a brilliant analogy. Um, yeah, so I did write on my blog about making my own table. And I think it was just a reflection of how, you know, oftentimes tables or, or spaces um, never really had space or never really, you know, invited or included um, or really welcomed people of my identities or, or me, you know, um, and so um, I think now I'm reflecting on what does it mean to then make my own table to create my own platform to to center my own voice in these in these spaces and these conversations and I think 
we all have to sort of like, you know, work on creating our own table because all of our voices are important. But while we're doing that, we have to recognize who's always had voice at the table and, and you know, who, um, who has always been like the one to go to to talk about particular issues or, or, or things. And so, you know, that was kind of the idea around like making my own table and sort of, you know, not waiting um, for an invitation at the table because it might never come, you know? So um, what does it mean to just then go ahead and just make your own table and just speak your own truth in, in the various spaces that um, are opening up or, or where you have positional power? And so I love this idea of, you know, making your own backpack or equipping your own backpack. Um, I think oftentimes with the outdoors, um, we there is a movement to, you know, create space for people of all identities to experience the outdoors. But I think, uh, I think oftentimes there is like a checklist, um, a very specific checklist or, or like a script that's already been pre-made. And I think, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that checklist um, or like a script of what it means to experience the outdoors and how to experience the outdoors and and what you might need to experience the outdoors. But I think what's needed is um, we need to think about what different people need to experience or engage in experiences in a safe way that feels right to them. And so I would I would um, really encourage people who are working in in this um, field or in this space or even educators engaging in you know outdoor learning with their students is to really situate their work in their in their context to really um, focus on building relationships with their students um, and their communities to really get to know what what is needed or creating space for students and community members to come forward and say, well, this is kind of like what we need to feel safe or experience um, experience this, you know, new experience. Um, I think contextuality is important because different people will need different things to, um, different people will need different things in their backpack to experience the outdoors or outdoor experiences in a safe way. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, knowing where you are, what, what students you're serving, their stories is really central to creating any programming that's focused on outdoor ed. And I think um, just sort of like changing our own stance of, you know, um, you know, holding back our own ideas of what people might need to feel safe or feel um, like they belong in this situation and really, you know, like letting, creating space for people to come forward and show us the way of what's what they need to feel safe. Um, and so not like necessarily projecting our own ideas about what the outdoors is and, you know, this is what you need, this is what you need, but just, you know, creating space for people to, um, explore and consider and then come forward with like what they need to feel safe. And I think um, another, you know, tip would just be to be open, um, be open to, you know, seeing how different people may experience the world. And so moving beyond this checklist of what we might need to include in our backpack, because once again, different people might need different things, you know, for example, you know, we, we might need a tent, but we also might need, um, 
we also might need, and this is not something physical, but we also might just need space and time to explore the outdoors. We might just need empathy um, to, you know, recognize that maybe this is our first experience in the outdoors and we just sort of need time to explore and to see and, and for people to be empathetic about the experiences that are, that are there. So I think our backpack um, can't be, the things in our backpack are not just going to be the same. I think that's something that we have to open to that different people will have different things, whether those are real things or whether those are emotional or, you know, frameworks. Um, and so, you know, just to be open about how different people will experience, um, you know, experience those different activities or experiences. I hope that answered your question. It, it does. It does. I mean, I want to get a little bit more this idea of, okay, mm -hmm. so there's physical safety things that perhaps, you know, are really important to, to bring in the backpack, but, um, but, but what goes along with that is, is this emotional safety. And I, you know, this program will air in the fall as we're going back into a year where, you know, this past school year has been very, very challenging with the mm -hmm. pandemic. So, and people have experienced that in different ways. We know that there have been social justice issues and inequity issues. And so adding this layer of taking your students outside and into the schoolyard, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more um, about what you were getting at with, with emotional safety. And, you know, if there are any things that come to mind about this empathy piece for educators to, to have empathy about the emotional safety needs. And, you know, I, I really think that this sense of emotional safety and building a place of belonging is truly the first step for rebuilding um, this kind of back to school platform. And I mean, we constantly hear this word, safety, 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 safety. Of course, safety is everybody's priority, of course. But actually a lot of people don't feel both don't feel physically safe or emotionally safe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm starting to think more about this idea as well of bravery. You know, when you're talking about uh, about your voice and using your voice, and that's a true act of bravery. And you know, some out being outdoorsy and heading off into the woods, people could say, okay, in some cases, maybe that's silly if you're heading off into bear country without certain safety protocols, but mm -hmm. also there's a certain amount of bravery or courage, but, but those steps of bravery are very different for different people, every single individual. And there's so many layers of identity mm -hmm. that we don't know that is causing someone to be silent, to not want to take a big leap, just a step. So mm -hmm. what can we do to, you know, um, be empathetic about various degrees of needing to be brave in order to attain that sense of emotional safety? Because there are huge factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think when I think about the outdoors, oftentimes we we sort of say, you know, like, let's just go outdoors, let's get our students outdoors. And I think, I think that's true. I think, you know, education as a whole, as a whole needs to 
uh, focus on outdoor education. Like I think that is a huge part of um, creating sustainability or even creating citizens and children who care about the environment. There has to be um, this embedded within the curriculum and how students experience their education system. It has to be a central, central aspect, you know, particularly sustainability, how to like love and take care of the environment that has to be central. But I think what also has to be central is an anti-oppressive stance to that or an equitable stance to that. And I think what I mean by that is um, really thinking, I think it has to start with how identities play into all of these experiences because identities um, shape how we experience the world, whether, you know, there, there are visible, our visible identities really impact how we experience the world, whether in our everyday interactions or also systemically. Um, and so, you know, it might sound like super, um, maybe like a big topic, but I think if we are to design any programming that is focused on, you know, helping our students explore the outdoors or, 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 or be in love with taking care of the environment, we have to first, you know, uh, work on our work on considering and building our own anti oppressive stance by really recognizing that people of different identities will experience the world differently. And so um, how does that then impact how I'm programming and, you know, which students are um, constantly, you know, experiencing this harm and which students might not be experiencing this harm. For example, like camping, um, just as an example, might be something that, you know, many families just do because it's something that's always been done in their families and their communities. Other people, um, might also love camping, but when they go to a campground, they might experience things differently based on their identities. You know, whether that's, you know, um, how they might experience, you know, the booking system of how to like, you know, how to like even get to that camping ground. And I'm not then a fan of the new booking system. You know, it's funny, I just <laughs> talked about this yesterday with uh, mm -hmm. Sylvia, who's the coordinator for TDSB Outdoor Ed Centers. And it's it's mm -hmm. different for it, it's challenging these i think these are things that parks need to hear right yeah mm -hmm. and 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 you're what, mm -hmm. what i'm hearing you say is that that experience with one's family is reflected mm -hmm. in the outdoor experience that an educator might not understand and say mm -hmm. let's go outside let's mm -hmm. take the learning outside and yet different people every student has had a different experience of, of mm -hmm. what that means Okay, I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. I just thought no, that was no, that no. That that's awesome that you said that. I think that's awesome that you said that because there are systems in place that might not be accessible for all people. You know, of, of coming from different lived experiences, we might not necessarily know which, um, you know, where to go, how to access particular spaces. But finally, once we get to those spaces, our identities and the way that we're perceived might might. Um, help us feel or or maybe force us to feel unsafe because people might be looking at us because we might be standing out um and and so i don't know if i'm being clear but what oh, I, you I, are. I, yeah, I can yeah. be i yes. can give an example where you know going to the cottage was not something that's you know a part of my lived experience um and and so now when people or when my family talks about oh you know like we should maybe go to the cottage or maybe we should book um a weekend to the cottage i feel fear in my stomach because um 
one, that's not an experience that I necessarily have experienced. Um, and it's not to say that other Muslim people have the same experience. I'm just talking about my own singular experience, but I'm also talking about how my identities have shaped this experience. And so, you know, that's not necessarily an experience that me or my family necessarily had. And so what, what makes me nervous um, is how, you know, my identities and the identities of my family might be viewed uh, when we go to this space where, you know, there's other families at the cottage or enjoying the cottage. And, and that's like a really real thing of um, how we're perceived. And I think it goes back to belonging, like who belongs here? Who are these experiences for? Um, and our identities in these spaces disrupt those ideas around whiteness or, or who's Canadian or who can have these experiences. And so, you know, it might seem normal, like, oh, you can just go to the cottage or, you know, you can just go camping. But what I, when we pack our backpack, we have to pack all of those physical things that we might need for camping or all of those physical things that we might need to go to the cottage. But we also have to pack these ideas around how we're going to keep ourselves safe, how we're going to interact. Um, what are we going to say if we get um, questioned or if there's hostility or aggression? And it's not to say that, you know, people are overtly aggressive in these spaces. It's, it's not to say that at all. I think it's just- But there can be microaggressions. There's, there's microaggressions. Yeah, and, I think and that's that... what I, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think what I'm talking about is this might, these microaggressions where mm -hmm. it might be like, it's not like, oh, you know, get your, you don't belong here. It's not, it might not necessarily be people like speaking or saying those or physically removing our our camping gear or our camping spaces but it's um it it might be those unsaid things they might be those looks um a long a, a longer stare or body language <laughs> yeah. or you know it yeah. is so important for people to hear this and I know yeah. you're speaking from personal experience so that's a vulnerable space and I I, I think this is exactly the, the heart of the work that needs to be done in the outdoor industry in Canada and in outdoor education. And I really hope listeners take it to heart and that there needs to be action on these pieces. Yeah, uh, thank you for saying that. I think, I think it is a really big movement where it's not just like an individual experience because this might be an experience that other people and racialized communities or any other communities might be experiencing as well. And I think, I think it really, you know, for me and my experiences, you know, when we are engaging in these experiences, or even if we are going a little bit out of Toronto for a daily um, excursion or something like that, it's not always just, it is the physical things that we have to get together, you know, get your snack, get all of those physical things. But it's also this almost like, um, not this armor. I don't. Know I was just about to say, yeah. Renee Brown's armoring up. You're covering that. You're protecting yeah. yourself. Covering and 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 there's um mm -hmm. protecting oneself from the vulnerability, but also, you know, this gearing up this, for something because there's also a history of harm. Yes. Yes. And so yeah. so mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. We have work to do. We have work to do in Canada. <laughs> I think, you know, what you've said is right. Like it is, you're gearing yourself up because you want to engage in these experiences, but you're also like nervous. And I, I think I'm, I, I mentioned this not to take so much space, but I mentioned this because these are those lived experiences that children have. 
And these children are coming to our classrooms and they are part of our spaces. And so my experience is not the experience of all Muslim people. It's not the experiences of all women, Um, but it might be the experience of some of our children. And so it's not just, you know, it's, it's, I think these experiences, not just my own experience, but, you know, so many other people's experiences are needed and are coming forward. Um, but I think it's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think knowing these experiences helps us then design programming that are anti-oppressive because I might experience this individually based on like what you said, like those microaggressions or those long stares. Um, And it's not to say that people are unwelcoming. It's just to say that there is a culture that's there. You know, there's a culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Mm -hmm. that that what you're saying is really true. And, you know, I'm thinking of um, then how that's represented, say, for example, you know, at the outdoor ed centers where I've worked Mm -hmm. at for seven years with the mm-hmm. images on the wall. And, and again, mm-hmm. this comes back to the images in books, right? And mm-hmm. we know that when it comes to the outdoors and images in books and on, on walls mm-hmm. that, that first of all, many of the people that are represented are white mm-hmm. and in those spaces, but also we sometimes, not we, but what sometimes happens is there's a plethora of, of actually animals right? There's mm-hmm. wild animals, just pictures of grizzly bears and foxes and rabbits. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. and, oh, and, and sometimes these spaces are actually even devoid of people, you know, like mm-hmm. the group of seven may, saying that Canada That's and true. nature is devoid of people when the first nations have been populating, Always here. you know, <laughs> Turtle Island for tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. there's that complex piece as well. And I, I think yeah. it's very, very important for you to speak of that individual experience is very brave, and for us to for us to hear it and um, not and 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 say, okay, well, what is happening in terms of say advertising in outdoor stores mm-hmm. or outers mm-hmm. magazines, mm-hmm. you know, and environmental magazines and websites, mm-hmm. and and how people see themselves and their own experience, and then how the children are bringing that into the classroom. And you know, you were talking about. I think we're going to wrap mm-hmm. up soon, but you were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, you know, listening. So Mm -hmm. listening to community, you know, you just, you just told a story, it's one story, but Mm -hmm. we have 20, 30 children in our classroom. And each one of those children has a very, very complex story Mm -hmm. and their families have complex stories. So I guess my last Mm -hmm. question is, you know, do you have any tips for that listening piece? And then that, that taking what one has learned and unpacking the backpack of it to make room for many stories. Yeah, um, you know, I really appreciate how you've said that. And I think, you know, I think we have to, when, as we're, you know, thinking about our own educator backpack, we really have to, you know, center identities and recognize that different people experience the, dif- the world differently based on their identities visible identities oftentimes, because those are markers of, you know, what people can see. Um, And I think, you know, I think just the knowledge um, of how different people experience the world individually, but also systemically is fundamental. Uh, So the micro picture with the macro picture, being able to have both of those visions, so important. Yeah. And I, I think what I would also say is that element will really help us 
create spaces where our students are able to be completely themselves. And as we cultivate the safe space, they will feel more comfortable, you know, um, sharing their, their stories. Um, and I think that will then help us um, expose, because I think school is about like exposing students. So I think all students need even more exposure to the outdoors or what we can experience in the outdoors because it's beautiful, you know, and it's for all of us in a way. Um, it is important for our mental mm -hmm. health, but we have to get to that space of feeling safe where we can unpack mm -hmm. the armor and let nature mm -hmm. do its work on our hearts. You yes. know, uh, so mm -hmm. so how can environmental and outdoor educators recognize the needs of students from that empathetic mm -hmm. standpoint, then taking children outside and into a municipal park or mm -hmm. um, you know, their own schoolyard isn't an experience of fear or, 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 you know, acknowledging that it is and then working with that complex identity so that then we can we can, you know, do other teach the curriculum outdoors. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, just to kind of like repeat what you've said, I think, you know, exposing is very important in schooling um, and, you know, creating accessibility, you know, who, how can we really um, use our positional power to help our children know how to explore the outdoors and also engage in accessibility. So, you know, help them learn about the processes and the tools that might be needed um, and really, you know, bringing the outdoors to them in a way um, as well, because, you know, as we were talking about the booking system, there are like inaccessible ways where not all families might know how to access the space. And so I think yes, all of our work, all of our work through an anti-oppressive stance can build all of that. And it, we have to start with ourselves. And, you know, I have to mention the books that you've sort of talked about. I think um, knowing all of this, knowing how identities, you know, shape how we experience the world as educators, we can then seek out books um, and stories that show people of all identities experiencing the outdoors. I think that's important because I think that's like a visual and visible representation and, and the visibility and the visualness of things matter because they are first, um, they're like the first go-to for representation. So if I can see myself like camping or something, then maybe in my mind, I'll be like, wow, that is something I could do. That's something I could do with my family. And it gives me hope and it gives me a space to be myself completely. I think that- Yeah, do you, is. do you have a few, just to wrap up, do you have a few books you would recommend? Um, the one that comes to mind is uh, Fatima's Camping Trip. I think that one comes to mind. Yeah. Um, what other ones? Nothing else coming to mind. Sorry, but I, 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 I wondered if you were thinking about, and that's a beautiful, beautiful book. And yeah. I think the suggestions um, that you have made, sharing your vulnerable story, I'm hoping that it has given listeners a sense of the work that needs to be done in outdoor environmental education to make it more accessible, to understand that there isn't just a single story, to mm -hmm. un unpack the backpack to make room mm -hmm. for other people's stories and also to develop that empathy so that the um there that students can really start to feel that sense of physical safety emotional safety and then um 
gain that mm-hmm. solace of, of nature that, that we all have the right to experience and, and, and mm-hmm. moving forward with that responsibility of hope. So thank you so much yeah. for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think the only other thing I would add is, you know, as we're developing our anti-oppressive stance, and, you know, we've talked a lot about all of that, I think it's not possible without first recognizing Indigenous rights and, you know, thinking critically about the land and, and being in solidarity with Indigenous communities. So, I think that has to be a cornerstone about for cornerstone of anti-oppressive um, thinking around the outdoors and outdoor education. You know, when we think critically about helping our students love and you know be um, love and have a have respect for the outdoors, it has to start with the land that we're on, and it has to be in solidarity with Indigenous communities. So, you know, I think it's, it's, everything is super interconnected. And if we are going to start somewhere, we have to start on our land and acknowledging it and, and, you know, building solidarities, because once we build those solidarities, all of the other anti-oppressive tips and tools that we've talked about will sort of come into play because it's going to help us recognize our own positionality. And that's, you know, really focused on how we can experience the outdoors. I think that's so important that you said that, you know, my degree is in environmental studies, which is an interconnected or interdisciplinary approach, but I also double majored with Indigenous studies mm. and recognizing as well from a non-Indigenous, as a non-Indigenous person, mm-hmm. that that is the cornerstone mm-hmm. in Canada and on Turtle Island. And, you know, I appreciate you saying that as well as a non-Indigenous mm-hmm. person, that educators need to hear that this is the place to begin, this mm-hmm. relationship with the land. And um, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you so much for having me. It was so beautiful to like talk about this and to really think about, really think critically about the outdoors. Thank you.